Hello, and welcome to Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. This is Kathy Pike. I'm your host for Big Ideas in Eating Disorders, and today I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Paul Applebaum. Dr. Applebaum is the Dollard Professor of Psychiatry, Medicine, and Law, and the Director uh, for the Center for Law, Ethics, and Psychiatry, and Director for the Center for Research on Ethical, Legal, and Social Implications of Psychiatric, Neurologic, and Behavioral Genetics in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University, College of Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Applebaum is a world expert and, and highly regarded in terms of his expertise around the ethical and legal issues in medicine and psychiatry. So we are really fortunate and delighted that you're here and have joined us. Thanks so much, Dr. Applebaum. Thanks for inviting me. So by way of background, this uh, this episode is a little different from others because generally we ask someone to join us who has a big idea that they want to share around eating disorders. And in this case, we have a big idea in eating disorders, and we've asked you to share some of your perspective, your wisdom, your knowledge around uh, ethics and law uh, to help us advance our discussion in the field of eating disorders. So by way of background, a little few key touch points to make sure that everyone is sort of starting at the same place. In uh, 2022, Dr. Gaudiani published a paper with colleagues, including second author who is a deceased patient and Joel Yeager, Dr. Yeager, entitled Terminal Anorexia Nervosa, three cases and proposed clinical characteristics in which they put forward and proposed criteria for a category, a diagnosis of quote unquote terminal anorexia nervosa that has essentially three criteria. One would be age over 30 years. Second is prior persistent engagement in high quality multidisciplinary eating disorders care. And the third would be decision-making capacity to understand further treatment is futile and wishing not to prolong life and having an acceptance of death. So the, if someone meets criteria for terminal anorexia nervosa, they have proposed that we should provide end of care, and potentially physician aid in dying to individuals in such contexts. The proposal raised a lot of issues and controversy in the field, uh, most notably concerns about the idea that we don't need a new diagnosis to provide palliative care or end-of-life care, that the terminal, the definition of terminal anorexia nervosa is fraught because we don't have sufficient capacity to predict, in fact, who will, who is at an end stage of life. And most people who are over 30 who have been in treatment um, and even high quality treatment who are nonetheless symptomatic will nonetheless not die within six months of the that point of diagnosis, which is often the duration that's used for a terminal diagnosis. Uh, and there are concerns about the risk of the term terminal diagnosis, terminal anorexia nervosa, 
due to the fact that this is a disorder that has a lot of burden and that there's very high risk of losing hope and that we don't have uh, great treatments or great access to treatment for all, all individuals with anorexia nervosa and that it may have significant unintended consequences. So that's big picture. We've had different individuals weigh in in published contexts. And in this video and audio podcast, we wanted to bring different voices to bear on the conversation. So maybe we could start, if you could help us just big picture in terms of general ethical framework or principles that you would apply to understanding and advancing this conversation specifically related to anorexia nervosa? Yeah, so um, thanks for that um, background, uh, Kathy. I, I think that's very helpful. Um, I, I see this discussion about terminal anorexia as part of a broader discussion about the role of what I refer to as physician-assisted death in psychiatry. Some people call it physician-assisted suicide. That's the term that the AMA uses. Uh, in Canada, it's called medical assistance in dying or MAID. Um, but I, what we're talking about is the uh, provision to patients who desire to end their lives uh, and to meet the criteria, which we can discuss, uh, of uh, medications that would uh, help them uh, end their life. And in this country, 10 states and the District of Columbia today have uh, laws allowing physician-assisted death, which involve the provision of medications that are then taken by the patient themselves. In Europe, they have gone further in the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, uh, to include what's usually referred to as euthanasia, uh, which is the administration of life-ending drugs by uh, a physician, um, or in Switzerland, a non-physician, to and the person's uh, life. So I see this discussion about anorexia as really part of, of this much bigger discussion about what is the role of physician-assisted death in psychiatry, mm -hmm. psychiatric disorders. Uh, when I think about that uh, discussion, I look to the criteria that people have suggested that are embodied in, in the statutory frameworks. Uh, and I see all kinds of problems uh, there. But in, in general, uh, these uh, statutory frameworks require two things. Um, one is that uh, death be, in, in this country, that death be predicted to occur within six months. So you're talking mm -hmm. about terminal conditions. But uh, in the countries we mentioned in Europe and in some other countries around the world, and soon in Canada, that restriction doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and um, physician assistance in death or euthanasia uh, are permitted for people who, regardless of their prognosis in terms of length of life, uh, have a condition that causes them uh, severe distress, which is deemed to be irremediable, untreatable. Mm-hmm. And under those circumstances, they're, if competent, allowed to request assistance in uh, dying from a, a physician. Mm-hmm. The problem with those uh, criteria as much sense as they might make for people with cancer or ALS or uh, other conditions that inevitably will lead to their death uh, is from the to, to start with um, the the first of those, namely uh, unbearable distress, significant uh, uh, stress. That's an entirely subjective criterion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, whereas its application, you know, in somebody who has severe bone pain as a result of metastatic cancer may be fairly straightforward in psychiatry where the disorders themselves are as often associated with a state of hopelessness, a sense that I will never get better, it becomes problematic because the patient's assertion that um, they are in uh, severe distress and hopeless distress Mm -hmm. uh, really is unchallengeable. Uh, There's no evaluation, no objective evaluation that can be made uh, to corroborate the assertion Mm -hmm. of the patient that that, uh, that's what they're uh, experiencing. And moreover, linked to that, then, the idea that this distress is irremediable, untreatable, uh, Mm -hmm. will never get better, uh, typically requires treatment failure, but only treatments that the patient is willing to accept. If patients are unwilling to accept in the case of eating disorders, inpatient hospitalization, refeeding to uh, to gain weight, um, or in the case of uh, depression, uh, ECT when antidepressants have been uh, unavailing, uh, or newer treatments like uh, ketamine. Uh, what you have is again a subjective determination by the patient who may feel worn out and hopeless as part of the illness itself, Mm -hmm. uh, that the criteria are are being met. So those two criteria really provide no check on the desire of a patient who presents themselves and says, I'm in distress, it's hopeless, all the treatments I'm willing to accept haven't worked, and I want to end my life. Now, the one additional criterion that then needs to be assessed is competence. Mm -hmm. But in general, when a patient is hopeless about the future, whether they meet criteria for major depression or not, when they've reached the point that they simply feel hopeless uh, about the future, 
but are coherent and mm. uh, apparently rational in every other way. Um, to call a person like that incompetent uh, is not an easy thing to do and might not, in fact, be upheld by the courts should, should that determination uh, be challenged. So mm -hmm. the competence criterion, I think, provides a, uh, a relatively weak check on the simple desire of a patient with a psychiatric disorder uh, to end their lives. Mm -hmm. to, to pile on a little here, we know from, from research in um, the Netherlands, which um, along with Belgium has been doing this longer and for more people uh, than anyone else, uh, that um, these assessments are often perfunctory, uh, that uh, the patient's word is accepted on distress and irremediability, uh, and the capacity uh, assessment seems to be uh, based on a global judgment. Is this person grossly irrational, as opposed to an in-depth examination of their, of their thought processes, uh, and then they proceed uh, to uh, physician-assisted uh, death. So mm -hmm. in, those, those are the things that one worries about with regard uh, to the criteria. There's also the policy perspective mm -hmm. here, which I think you alluded to in your introduction, which is that um, we need to think a little bit about the consequences of making available assistance in ending one's life for people with psychiatric disorders and what impact that's likely to have on the care system as a whole, as well as on the individuals uh, within that system. Psychiatric disorders, and this certainly goes for anorexia, are often difficult to treat mm -hmm. uh, and uh, can result in frustration on the part of the treater as well as on the part of the patient. And the consequence of that could be, and you know, we have little bits of evidence from Canada more, most recently that, that uh, this is true, could be that the easy way out uh, is to suggest to the patient uh, that um, there's this assistance in dying that can actually resolve your suffering when it doesn't look as though anything else is uh, going to uh, help. Mm -hmm. And the communication to the patient, of course, is that you have a hopeless case. And so why not take this way out? It's a very disturbing prospect. Yeah. Yeah, let's, picking up on that, and then if we can work our way back, a couple of things I'd like to follow up on. Recognizing that for someone with anorexia nervosa, um, they've likely developed the disorder in their early adolescence or during the course of adolescence, if we go with the proposed criteria of being over 30, you know, they've been dealing with this for a long time. And as you say, it is, it's a real burden for somebody who has a really serious 
case of anorexia nervosa. And, and frequently, these are individuals who also have a very uh, high desire to please and um, not to be a burden. So in some ways, I think one of the concerns of uh, of a number of people in the field is that presenting this, as you say, almost is colluding with some of the aspects of the disorder. Like if you're a good girl and want to relieve your parents of the burden that you've been, uh, this is the way to do it. And so it really resonates for me when you say that the the unintended consequences of this in particular for anorexia nervosa are really serious. If we go back to uh, an earlier comment that you made, one of the things that I wonder about is the authors originally talk about end of life care. And I think we get we confuse a lot of terms in this world. Uh, and in talking about end of life care and talking about palliative care. And in both cases, whether we are recognizing that somebody has is in fact dying as a result of their anorexia nervosa, the course of the disorder has gotten so progressive that they we recognize that they are in a the state of moving towards their death. And what is the care that we offer at that stage of end of life, which is probably a few days, not longer than that. And what are we, and, and separately, but relatedly, this idea of palliative care, which can be delivered at any stage of course of care, but people get those confused all the time that's focused on quality of life, like reducing the burden of the disorder. From your perspective, is the term terminal anorexia nervosa necessary for either of these, either medically or because of the health system we live in? Like, Do we need this diagnosis in order to provide appropriate care palliative care at any point along the continuum or end of life care is this diagnosis necessary no i i don't i don't think that it is and i know that um some of the leading people in eating disorders uh, care in this country uh have great concern about labeling patients as terminal mhm because it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. uh, and patients may take to labeling themselves as terminal, uh, which in turn is self-fulfilling. Mm -hmm. uh, it, um, it, it seems very problematic from that perspective. Moreover, once that term is out there, even if the authors of the Journal of Eating Disorders paper that proposed uh, these criteria would apply it cautiously. Um, it, it is not to say that will, it will be applied cautiously in, in the real world. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, one aspect of this that we haven't talked about yet, although you alluded to this as well, 
in your introduction is that high quality care for anorexia nervosa is not universally available, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even for people who have insurance, even if their insurance is willing to pay for it. And both of those can't be taken as givens. Um, it, there are a relatively small number of high quality programs that treat eating disorders, treat anorexia, and um, they are uh, often full. Uh, it's not always possible to get people into them. Uh, they're sometimes in remote locations from where the person lives, and that is not an expense that everybody can afford. Mm. Uh, and um, the term will uh, come to be applied, I fear, uh, to people who could be treated, but for whom we simply haven't built a good enough system uh, mm -hmm. to make that care uh, available. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it will have a pernicious effect well beyond what the authors who proposed it uh, anticipate or, or themselves would, would do. Let, let me, as an example of, of how this happens, not using anorexia, but using depression, let, let me relate a, a much publicized case from Canada that occurred uh, recently. A woman presented at an emergency room in Western Canada, uh, depressed and suicidal, came in voluntarily, said, I want treatment, I, I need help. I'm, I'm afraid I might hurt myself. She was told, well, the inpatient unit is full. And to see an outpatient psychiatrist here is gonna, there's a long waiting list. It's gonna take a long time. But we have another option for you, which some patients find to be very comforting. Um, we have physician-assisted death, medical assistance in dying, they call it, in Canada. And um, maybe that's something you should consider. Now, the ethics of suggesting to patients who are seeking care that they might want to end their lives instead uh, are, uh, are horrific. Huh? Um, the dedication to the well-being of the patient the principle of beneficence, uh, much less the principle of, of non-maleficence, first do no harm, are both violated in that account. Uh, uh, nonetheless, it happened. And it, it didn't happen in some um, country with, without advanced psychiatric care. It happened in Canada. Mm -hmm. and, um, one can readily anticipate uh, that uh, it will happen here in the United States as well. And it will not just happen for patients with depression. It will happen for people with all kinds of mental disorders for whom access to appropriate care isn't immediately uh, available. And, and that includes anorexia. And I would, I would worry greatly about exactly that kind of, of behavior mm -hmm. patients with anorexia. So the misapplication 
uh, even if the if Dr. Gaudiani and colleagues intended it in a very narrow with a narrow, very narrow lens, um, the misapplication, as you illustrate here, is uh, seriously high risk, right? Well, and seriously high risk for patients and their families, right? Um, and I wonder, Paul, if you could comment on the, you know, we will we run the risk of losing individuals who actually could recover. Um, because they, at the darkest hour, die uh, instead of making it through. Um, what do you see as the potential, which is tragic? Additionally, I wonder what you see as the potential risks or implications for family members and or health providers uh, in this climate or this, if this were to, to come to pass? Yeah, I, I um, could readily imagine um, family members who've struggled for a decade or two decades uh, to support a patient with an eating disorder, which can be a, an enormous burden on a family. There are other children when, when we're talking about adolescents, mm-hmm. uh, don't get the attention that they may need because of the family's focus on on the child with the eating disorder. Uh, and and you know, as parents get older, they're they're less able to spend the effort to to sustain a, a an ill child. Um, I could easily imagine parents coming to see relief not just for their child, but for themselves. They may not think about it that way. It may be unconscious, but mm-hmm. the appeal of a way out mm-hmm. uh, which involves the death of their child. Although if you put it to them that way, they would deny it resolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, nonetheless, seems to me to be a, a real risk here. Mm-hmm. And the same is true for treaters. We've all had cases of all kinds of psychiatric disorders, mm-hmm. uh, which are difficult cases, mm-hmm. and frustrating, and we're not making progress. Mm-hmm. We have a sense that we are failing. Well, maybe there is something we can do for those patients. Maybe we can help them end their lives, and that will relieve our burden and our sense of failure. And um, they say they want it, uh, mm-hmm. and um, the temptation to go in that direction, I think, uh, will be will be real. Mm-hmm. When we think about putting in place policies, mm-hmm. we need to think about the downside risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, the downside risks to me seem huge. You don't say physician aid in dying. You say physician-assisted death. Is that the right uh, I, way I you would put it? The word death yeah. brings home in a very direct way what we're talking yeah. about here. Yeah. So physician-assisted death. Um, what do you think is the, and what do you bring to this conversation from an ethical perspective and from a, a physician's perspective on what what do we offer 
to our patients who have decided that they don't want more treatment that is aimed at curing their condition? I was trained uh, in another era um, Mm -hmm. when, um, nonetheless, um, that was a very real question. Patients Mm -hmm. who might not want more treatment or for whom treatment has simply not been terribly effective. Uh, And I was trained to, um, to view my role as a physician in those cases, as to be with and not to abandon my patient. Um, as a resident, I remember sitting with patients with chronic unremitting schizophrenia who had been hospitalized for decades, decades, mm-hmm. and talking with them and being there for them. Did they get better as a result of my attention? No, their their condition was as it was the year before and the year before that, and as it would be the following year. Uh, but I was a human being for them and with them, uh, giving them, I hope, uh, some measure of support uh, in their in their lives. Uh, And it seems to me that for us to move away from that, uh, which I think we we have uh, with this focus on helping people die as opposed to helping people live uh, is is a a bad turn. Uh, The ethics of medicine should be focused on beneficence and non-maleficence, sustaining people, helping people, being with people. When there's nothing more we can offer, we can offer ourselves. We can offer human contact and support. As you describe sitting with individuals with schizophrenia for who are highly symptomatic, have been symptomatic for decades, um, and actually I, I, what Uh, What comes to mind for me is I hear you say there's a certain experience of acceptance of being with the individual in the state that they're in and that that is that is caring for the individual at that moment. And so if we just carry that a, um, a little bit further out in those situations because it is true that anorexia nervosa is a very can be a very serious and in fact a fatal condition for actually a very small percentage of individuals who develop anorexia nervosa but it is it is a possibility and it is a risk and some people do die from this disorder and if they are at this end stage what do you imagine? What would you imagine? Or what would you, how would you want to be with that person in that end stage of life? What's the role at that point for, for all of us as, as caregivers, uh, whether professionally or as loved ones? Yeah, no, I, I, I think our role is to be there in a supportive capacity to offer them the opportunity to reflect on their lives, 
if death is inevitable to prepare for that death, um, but not to be abandoned. Mm -hmm. And when I say to, were I to say to a patient, uh, look, you don't have to go through this. We can give you some medication to end your life uh, immediately or, or, you know, after a 72 hour waiting period. Um, part of the communication there is, and then I'll be done with it. Mm-hmm. Right. I, 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 I'm 72 hours more and then I'm, I'm done mm-hmm. as opposed to I'm here for you as long as you need me i'll help you as best i can i realize i there are limits to what i or anybody can do but i'm not walking away i'm not going to abandon mm-hmm. part of my fear about this whole enthusiasm for physician assisted death is that we're it represents an effort to treat the the health professionals more than to treat the patients Mm -hmm. to to, um, remove from physicians and psychologists and nurses and everyone who's involved with these cases, the burden of sitting with someone whom we can't help Mm -hmm. in, in a concrete way that worries me greatly because that's not what we should be doing. So Paul, as we wrap up, what do you have some words of guidance, words of wisdom to those of us in the eating disorders field that are wondering, do we continue this? Con- is this a conversation we need to continue to have? Will the conversation continue no matter whether we want to have it or not? So we should lean into it. Is it distracting from what we should be talking about? Um, what would you suggest to us as a field in terms of constructively moving forward around this topic? I do think it is probably a distraction from the bigger questions of how can we treat eating disorders better than we do today? How can we increase the availability of services uh, for people with eating disorders? but I don't know if we're going to be able to avoid the discussion. There, there's a, um, there's, you know, what, once this gets put on the on the table, once you've got in ten states laws that permit physician-assisted death for terminal conditions, uh, the the slope gets a little slippery here, and um, I think there will inevitably be pressure to extend it to non-terminal conditions, and that inevitably will include psychiatric disorders. And I think we're all going to have to decide as as mental health professionals where we stand on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it is inevitable that um, decisions will need to be made about whether we want to embrace this policy or, or not. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing with us the principles and framework that you understand so deeply from a very big picture perspective and bringing them to bear on this discussion. It's one that 
many of us in the field are are very concerned about and 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 there are a number of different views on the topic so having your guidance really brings a certain light and clarity and i really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today it was good to talk with you kathy thank you for inviting me